Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. The dishwasher works here. The dishwasher works episode. <laughs> Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and oh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. We really are in the kitchen, Henry. And we, so we were waiting to, to start the show up, and we were working on actually a garbage disposal and dishwasher situation. We are in an actual kitchen where we talk about rec- records every goddamn month. That's right. Twice a month, Twice really. A month. Yeah. I'm Chris, Where by is the my way. Mind? <laughs> and I'm Henry. You're this on. show is called 80s Music Exposed. Right. And if you're listening at this point, I, I hope that you've already rated and reviewed our show on iTunes. But if you haven't, we would really appreciate it if you would. Uh, and, of course, you can also listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher. Share it with your friends. We would love to grow our listenership. And that's how we do it. Also, you can chat us up on Twitter at 80s Music Exposed. That's 80SEXPOSED. Or, and this is new, you can hit me up directly on Twitter if you want to yell at me or say cool things about how <laughs> awesome I sound. At, at TCI Duke. TCI Duke. That's me. And Henry, what is your Twitter handle? I am at Hank G. At H A N K G E E. Hank that's, G. That's Hank G. That's that's who he is. So if you guys want to talk to us directly, uh, we're not hiding it anymore. We're out here. Um, so come find us on Twitter. Henry, how do we pick the records that we review on our so show? So we use something called the Rags method. <laughs> this is a, this is a this is a lab tested, bulletproof way to review records. It's called lab tested, mother approved <laughs> Rags. <laughs> what does it's, that stand for, Henry? So basically, this is the criteria that we use to um, select what records we're going to listen to for uh, the month. And the first criteria being R for... Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. A for... All Music. G for... Grammy-nominated records. And S... <laughs> Shit we like. <laughs> so that's the criteria. That's, if you if you listen to the show at all, you'll know we go into this way, uh, way too much in the 1980s episodes. But, so. you know, if this is your first time picking it up, you'll probably want to know what, you know, how we pick these things out. And we had, there's... I think all you really want to know is rags, and that's all you... you right. You're good to go. Uh, we had to m- make a couple changes to our lineup this week because one record we had tried to find just wasn't easily available. Significant <laughs> events. Okay, so we're in this, the, this, this, we're in, we're covering March. We're covering March of 1981. Right. right. And so, what's the first significant event we had? Big in that deal. Month? March 30th, President Reagan was shot by Hinckley. Yes, yes, that was a big event. Do you remember when that happened? I do. I do. I remember that. Uh, I thought it was. I, I'll be honest with you. It came so close to the John Lennon shooting as a child. I thought it was the same dude. Oh, really? I was. I got it confused in my head that there was like one guy going around shooting everybody that was famous. 
I wonder if uh, Jodie Foster still thinks about that guy. I just feel bad that Jodie Foster had to get wrapped up in that. Like, she probably didn't like Reagan or Hinckley, either one. So, Here's another one. I'll give you a clue. And that's the way it is. Such and so, such and so. And he would give the date. Yeah, he would. He'd give the date. Who was that, Henry? Walter Cronkite. Yes, he signed off for the last time as the anchor of CBS Evening News on March 6th, 1981. A different time. Yep. And also, Henry, you know what was number one at the box office in what? March? The Devil and Max Devlin. Do you remember that movie? They, I mean, I remember Bill Cosby. Yeah, it was a Bill Cosby, right. Elliot Gould movie. The, the interesting thing about the movie at the time was it was the first Disney movie that had a cuss word in it. A live action Disney. Oh, movie. I remember. So that. this was Disney's attempt to do start doing some adult uh, content. But I found it interesting that uh, everyone was really put off that they cast Bill Cosby as the devil. <laughs> hmm. Not so weird now, is it? My, how the tables have turned. <laughs> Fact is stranger Things than fiction. Go, hmm. <laughs> but Henry, we we are here to review the albums of March of 1981, and the first one we're going to talk about is an album that I did not know existed, as such, called The Dude, and it was by Quincy Jones. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good enough, 'cause here we are back where we were before. Seems nothing ever changes We're back to being strangers Wondering if we ought to stay Or head on out the door Just once Can we figure out what we keep doing wrong Why we never last for very long What are we doing wrong? Just once Can we find a way to finally make it right? To make the magic last for more than just one night We could just get to it I know we could break through it Okay, so Henry, the reason I said that was I've never heard of an album called The Dude by Quincy Jones. I knew him as super producer for the 80s for Michael Jackson and a bunch of other people. I feel terrible that I didn't know that he actually put out a record. And then when I heard the two songs on this record that are ubiquitous for early 80s music, I just thought those were like James Ingram songs. You felt even worse. Yeah, because I didn't know know Quincy Jones had anything to do with those. Okay, so here's... uh, and they're kind of porn soundtracky too, are they not? Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, in a good way, like in a classic like if you're porn rip kind of way. Off, like that's probably what you ripped off, right? Mm-hmm. I knew vaguely some of uh, some of what his his involvement in, with music was up until a point, right? So, it, big jazz guy played the horn, made it into production. I didn't know that. For some reason, I thought that maybe the first record he did was, and I hate to even say this, but you remember he did some 90s albums? Yes, I do. Yeah. Where you had a rapper who said, back on the block. Right. And so that's what, when I think of Quincy Jones' pop records, that's what I'm thinking of when I go, hmm. No. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, and, and, and it sounds like I'm going to rip this record apart, but I'm not. I'm, I'm actually, after delving into it, kind of a big fan. Um, so my thoughts, Henry, when I started looking at this further was it reminded me of kind of the big band era of guys, like where Glenn Miller would get the credit for the album. But what he really did was, you know, I mean, he did arrange the songs and put the band together. And I guess it was the Glenn Miller Orchestra. I guess it was his record. But what was cool to me about this record was basically everything I read about it was Quincy Jones was just doing what he does. Right. He basically was doing what it's, he does with anybody else. Or with an artist. With an artist. He just had the guest artist come in and he put his name were on you, it. Were you judgy about it at first before you even put it in? Because I was. I was just because I, I assumed... This is so. This is chronologically like kind of right before Thriller. Right. So I'm like this. There's no way. There's not. Like there's gonna be anything good on this. Plus, I'd never heard the name the dude. So I'm like, there's no hits on this. And then I turn it on. I'm like, oh, my mom listens to these right. jams least, all the time. There's at least right. two or three. I mean, in fact, sure. my mom loves James Ingram. So I'm like, so yeah. And and um, and this is like the James Ingram origin origin story I, right man, here. Man, I, t- I, t- I texted you earlier this week because I had an actual Ratatouille moment because I'd forgotten all about the song. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten about James Ingram. I got to tell you. I had to. Until until his voice appeared. I'm like, he was a good singer. Well, no, for all of my friends out there that are into Yacht Rock, I, I'm still, I was still familiar with the James Ingram because of his duet with Michael McDonald. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which he did a little bit later. But um, So anyway, getting back, as I was suspicious, it smelled like it was going to be a vanity kind of thing. Anytime you, you – I'm thinking, how does a producer put together – a record without playing any songs on it and without writing any songs on it and not singing anything and not uh, doing his instruments. And I thought, well, how could it possibly be anything of what it is? And then I played it. And it remi- you know, the correlation I'm going to draw is Steely Dan a little bit, hmm. where you take all the guys, the perfect guys that you want, and there are some like major Stevie Wonder is on this thing. Right. Yeah, there's Herbie Hancock Hancock is on this. Right. Michael Jackson's on it. And you can hear the fingerprints of what's in, uh, then going to become Thriller. So it's not like and he he did some arranging. He did rhythm and vocal arranging and those kinds of things, but he didn't write any of the songs and he didn't play any of the instruments. But still somehow it sounds like it's an artistic statement of its own. Yeah, and one of the reviews I read of it said the whole album is a stew of different sounds and collaboration to help make a great record. I think he was actually breaking ground for all the stuff right. that was coming later. The first two songs on it, one of them is kind of this Latin jam with synth with mm-hmm. a synth part, which was co-written by Rod Templeton and Chaz Jenkel of Ian Drury and the Blockheads, which was kind of like a new wave. Um, Band plus a Latin guy, and they came together and wrote, you know, and it was it was cool because Quincy Jones thought to put them together, this kind of mashup thing before mashups were ever happening. Mm-hmm. The there's a song on there, I, it may be the dude itself is it's got this kind of proto rap kind of thing going on, which of course rap was just getting started. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff on there uh, that is kind of predating different things. So I don't know how much Henry I liked it just for itself. I liked it kind of as an artifact. I don't yes. know that I can recommend. This goes a little bit to the reasons people like records. And I will say this, uh, from doing my research, I found multiple artists that have sampled this record. This is one of those records that people, uh, many artists that came later would sample uh, heavily, you know, 
uh, throughout the 90s and 2000s. A lot of people find the dude to be their favorite record. Yeah, so um, I am I am going to make a half recommendation. I'm going to recommend this if you um, are interested in it as an artifact. I'm also going to recommend it if you like R&B, Quiet Storm. I think you could make an argument that it kind of uh, started Quiet Storm. You think? Or is right there at the beginning, um, or if you like soul music a lot. And I didn't realize I was a James Ingram fan, but now I am. Henry, what is our next record? Next record that we're going to listen to is Solid Gold by the Gang of Four. Four were a post-punk group from Leeds in the UK. Um, you sound to me like a man that doesn't want to review the record. Am I avoiding it? It sounds to me like you're giving me nuts and bolts. <clears throat> I, I th- How I did the like record make you feel? Well, I wanted to speak a little bit about it first before I... You're going to jump right to it. Um, you know, you listen to these all these albums in context, right? So sometimes you put them next to each other and you're forced to sort of analyze them next to what happened before and I don't know that that's always fair you know because I think some some records are meant to be heard in in a particular time and context but uh, I thought that I found the songs to be kind of angular I think the most interesting part of this record was the rhythm section I found some of the guitar work, although kind of angular, and it's decidedly punk rock record, I believe. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this because I found a lot of a lot of places online that um, are into the type of music. This is right in our wheelhouse sure. for the type of music we like. That that people consider this a classic. I found this album to be something that I should love. But I never did, and I still don't. It's it's there's right. something about it that's uh, that's lackluster, and I you at know, least was allowed through this podcast to figure out what it was. Here's what I think it is. I think he he has a tendency to use the same chord formations a lot, right? Like I don't know what you call that. It's the same dissonance all the time on right. the guitar work, and he doesn't seem to change the guitar textures up very much at all to me. Did you catch it like that? Uh, I, I uh, not so much. I I actually found that the guitar work. If I when I was analyzing it, I thought it was quite interesting. I I totally agree with you that the most interesting thing about it was the rhythm tracks. I think they are great. I can't understand why they don't do anything for me. And then what I did is I took Peter Gabriel's Melted Face and played it right next to this, and I realized what the problem was. What? This is one of the worst produced records I think is I've that ever the heard. Problem? So. 
I started doing my research and I looked and I found a review that said, put Solid Gold on next to the EP that comes out after it and tell me what you think of Gang of Four. It sounds like two totally different bands. Does it really? One sounds like an energetic uh, post-punk band like what we would like them to sound like and then there's Solid Gold. Um, just, just to make sure that I'm not totally off base i found this on the bbc website uh-huh. the first five tracks of solid gold trudged lumpily through different versions of the same lackluster idea because the production is totally dull it feels like important music about important stuff but by but delivered by a stuffy eighth grade history teacher okay that's what the problem sounded like to me so um, i just felt like it got kind of samey that way I thought I the dyna, the dynasty is that a word dynamism of dynamism the, the dynamic <laughs> production on both the Joy Division records um, just put them on at the same volume right next to this record and you're like the songs are good everything the rhythm tracks are great mm-hmm. why does it sound so kind of this and I don't even know Henry I didn't it's find a remastered version I'm sitting here thinking I didn't either maybe this this album is screaming for a remaster but um, I found the production to be dull and I'll be honest with you Gang of Four was always a band I kind of avoided even when we were way into this stuff because this was the only one I knew supposedly these guys tamed down their sound in some way took some of the sharper edges off for the record that I kn- knew that you probably knew was called Maul right and I didn't have access to the record then, but I kind of put them in a dustbin for whatever. I didn't bother to pursue it. And so this was the first Gang of Four record I've really well, listened to. So I can't say that it sucks, obviously, but I can't say that I'm over really impressed. I think the lyrics and the rhythm section bring this record farther along than the guitar work, and maybe it had something to do with the production. Well, and I think I, as, as I try to put myself in the position of our listeners i feel i feel like maybe each episode there might be one record that our listeners may have time to go back and check out again and i can't in good conscience say do this one because you could pull closer by joy division or um different even another even another album that we're going to review later in this episode you could pull out and i think you'd be more satisfied with a angular post-punk it's uh 80s sound and the order we do these is always like that because you want to draw and i know where you're going with that that uh i heard proto-martyr in there did you yeah a little bit of that Sure. I wondered if, and you know there is, and I'm not. I don't want to shortchange Gang of Four because they yeah, do yeah, have I mean, a huge following, and there's a lot of people that think even this record's great. I just think for me, going back, I was like, man, the production on this thing really shortchanges it. And it was produced by a guy named um, Jimmy Douglas, but I found this to be interesting. It was the, it was them and Jimmy Douglas were given production credit, uh-huh. and Jimmy Douglas is just listed on his own stuff as an engineer he's never listed as a producer <laughs> so i think this was kind of like his first produced and he with some help which i don't know if you remember back to our days being musicians but the first mm. little record we made we had a guy that engineered it and we kept saying oh you're producing it and he was like no i'm twiddling knobs don't give me production credits on this shit <laughs> <laughs> on this garbage <laughs> on this garbage pail <laughs> 
But that's another that's another story. Henry, uh, what do you think of Solid Gold? Um, it, I heard, like I said before, I, I first heard Gang of Four in the '90s, but was some for some reason was unimpressed. Um, I found this record to be sort of more distinctively punk rock, but something was uh, samey from track one to ten. Yeah, some, some some samey bits, uh, and um, I think you're probably right about the production. So I, I pretty much landed where you did on this. Okay, well here's a record I hope we land in different spots on. It's called Don't Say No by Billy Squire, and the song I'm going to play is Lonely Is The Night. record were I did not realize how big of a Led Zeppelin fan this Billy Squire guy was until uh, going back and listening to this. Good lord. He played the hell out of some guitar, didn't he? I mean... And they thumped a little bit. I well, didn't realize that. I, 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 found, I found someone saying that you ought to listen to the song by Led Zeppelin called What Do You Want From Me right next to Lonely Is The Night. And I was like, he just copped their whole their whole bit their whole thing but that's kind of cool you know because i you know i think we we used to go back and forth on this in the 90s when we would hear a band and say they sound too much you would say they sound too much like a smith's ripoff uh-huh. and i would say well what do you want them to sound like like a, like if you're gonna rip off like a milly vanilli ripoff rip off the best right like i mean yeah. why not be influenced i mean it, it so billy squire's putting music out in the 80s he was influenced by Led Zeppelin from the 60s and 70s, I mean, right? the record was good and competent. I think his voice was distinctive for some reason. I don't remember anybody really sounding exactly like him. But was he the beginning of that sort of lead, uh, Def Leppardy kind of delivery? Of I don't music? know. See, I, I now all I can hear is he sounds like he's trying to be Robert Plant to me. Especially Lonely was the night. A lot of high... I feel like he was copping this sort of... Almost trying to be New York Dolls, but not quite. Whew, I didn't hear any of that. I, I think I At used to when I was a kid. kid I thought he carried himself as like sort of punk. But man, I was just hearing some hard rock. This to me is that it's geared towards the Midwestern suburban rock kid mm-hmm. um, it's not there's nothing of real substance in these lyrics this now, is just everybody like, have you heard if you're in the game then the strokes the word I mean we're just going don't right take no rhythm don't take no style got a thirst for killing grab your vial uh what the fuck vial what the fucking vial you grabbing put your right hand out give a firm handshake talk to me about that one big break spread your ear pollution 
both far and wide. <laughs> the hills I need. This is the rock and roll, right? Ear pollution. Keep your contributions by your side and stroke me, stroke me. I don't could be I'm, a winter boy. You move mighty well. He wrote this stuff, and it was it. I, I don't think it matters what he what he was writing, and I don't think the audience cared. They, I don't because think I think either. he was writing for twelve year old boys, which I was, and I was We're totally stroking, right. I was totally taken with this record as a kid, as a ten year old really? kid. I thought it was great. I didn't even know about it. Um, this is did everything for me then that Ario Speedwagon was supposed to be doing for me. Uh, but but didn't then. Um, where it, isn't it weird? I don't remember hearing solo records that that were rock albums per se. Right, this is exactly what this is. You mean like well, Rick Springfield kind of fell in that kind of category. This is harder, I think. I do too. This record. is this is hard rock. This is '80s hard rock. I mean, Sammy Hagar was doing '80s hard rock at this point. I think he was actually trying to make a good album. I don't think he was trying to sell out too hard. This guy. That's how it felt to me. This guy wanted to rule the world. No, I don't think he was. I think he was trying to make a good record. He had five tracks on this album that were hits. Three were top twenty U.S. hits. Damn. Um, I can't tell that there's a lyric in any of the songs that <laughs> actually mean anything. Not that they're not good. They, I, I just think he wanted. It I don't to think sound he gives good. a shit. I think he just writes a good riff and then, like you said, he was like, "This one will be about stroke." I just think he wanted it to sound good. Well, yeah, and I'm not. I'm. I was a fan at the time. I'm not critical. I mean, you can't go wrong with 12 year old kids in '80 when Led Zeppelin had just broken up because the drummer died, copping a little Led Zeppelin action and hitting the suburbs and touring the um, six to eight thousand seat arenas in, you know, the Quad Cities and places like that, and and cranking it out in Middle America. I remember he came to my hometown of Johnson City, Tennessee, three times and like. At like 24, you know, two two years, three years. So he was on the road doing it. And, you know, uh, he also had some of these, I don't know if you remember these, but he had the videos that were until his nadir, until his, which we won't talk about yet, but he had just those crappy, remember the there was that certain subset of early videos which were just kind of like crappy live? Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a lot put to them. They just needed a video. Yeah, and so they just set up the cameras and have them yeah, back yeah. for the camera. That was pretty much what was going on in his early videos. I do agree with you. I, I don't think he thought, he, I, he wanted the record to sound good. I don't think he was like, I don't give a shit what this sounds well, like. Well, you know, the cover of it's basically him in a pair of blue jeans barefooted. He's got a. I think right. we can both agree from our uh, obsession with him later on, which we I yeah. can't wait till we get. We might have to do a whole episode on that. He definitely had an. E, he has an ego situation going on. I mean, he definitely thinks he's got a look. Yep. I, would you not agree? I mean, yes. every photo of him, he's got some sort of this thing going on, which yeah. is interesting to me. Which is totally interesting <laughs> to me as well. Um, I'm not going. This is a shocker. I'm not going to recommend this record. Um, even though I loved it as a 10-year-old, you out there have already heard everything you need to hear from this record. If you just want more of it, there's nothing on this record that you that I, I don't know about you, anybody. There's nothing on it that goes, oh, this one was just a filler song. They're all pretty much the same quality <laughs> hard rock record. Right. Uh, I don't mean, I mean, I hate to say it. I just don't disagree with it. Just kind of meh. I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. I don't hate it. Oh, here, put it this way. I wanted to just hate it actively. But he wins just by saying, mm, 
I'm the, I'm the same not way you too, are. I, I actually was hoping you... So it's kind of a win. It I was is. kind of hoping you were going to really hate it because I wanted to and I wasn't really hating it, but... I just didn't... It, I wasn't, I wasn't I also, overly impressed. I also hope that I that this gets out, this bad taste gets out of my mouth, that as we go on doing this show, I don't have Ario, my hatred for Ario Speedwagon making me not hate other records as much as I should hate them. <laughs> because I think if I had not reviewed Ario Speedwagon before this, I probably would have hated on this record a little bit more. <laughs> but it's like all things compared to that. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to put things next to each other. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you do. All right, so the next record we're going to talk about is uh, by a band that everybody heard the first time, the the Vapors, when they did um, Turning Japanese. But we're going to listen to a song off their second album, which is called uh, Magnets, that came out in March of 81. And the song I want to play for everybody is called Magnets. to look at the record cover i did what'd you think um i'm, I'm not a big fan of that record cover but um it's interesting it was it, i did a little bit of research on it it's there's a what is it's the a german word called wimmel bilderbuch you ever heard of that no it's um the same guy who did this was an artist who did all the will the where's waldo stuff I found this record interesting because all I knew of the Vapors was Turning Japanese, which I think we have to give a mention to. If you go back and listen to that, I, 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 there was definite problems. Uh, you, you, with nowadays, you could not put out... Um, uh, something about somebody's race. Well, there's just some cultural issues. Like, basically, he's... Singing when you go like this. Well, he's saying he's turning Japanese, and then the, the chorus sounds like... You know, oh, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Right, there's that kind of thing. And then um, I don't understand from the lyrics why he's turning Japanese, why what's happening to him is he's, making him he's turn He's supposed Japanese. to be masturbating. Yeah, but I don't know why Which that's... makes your eyes go like this, I guess. Okay, see, I didn't go. put that together. Wow. And so, well, that, that's what the rumor was. Okay. He denied it later, but says that the rumor probably helped them move units on... Well, that makes song. it even more inappropriate to me that that your that your masturbation so face looks that like was a, supposedly the thing. an Asian person. But um, so with this, that said, I think 
I feel like he's been punished enough for that because that song basically ruined the Vapors, which um, they turns out listening to Magnets had a lot more substance, a, whole and a hell, lot more going on. They, yeah, I was. This. Were you surprised about that? As yeah. I was? Yes, because, because that's the I, curse of turning Japanese. I thought they I were listen, one hit. What I wonder. know about that band, I think okay, they're to blame for all the garbage pop punk that happened in the nineties. Like that, that that was the beginnings of yeah, pop, they're, they're popular one of, pop punk music. They're one of the the VH1. Uh, I guess. Know, yeah. It came from the '80s band, but the, you know, there's a unifying theme on this record about um, violence that permeates modern civilization. There's and also the, and the effects that it has on people today. And you see it in the uh, in in the painting. Some people are attracted to the violence. Other people are are repelled by it. In our society today, we see people that are you know uh, both attracted and repelled to those things. On on a, on a musical side, for me, I felt like there was a lot more. Um, clash influence than there was um, new wave. Like I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised how much closer it was to punk than it was this new wavy kind of the knack or yeah. one of these LA but, uh, bands. My, but just to answer that is it, even though it was a little punk, um, there was a commercial sheen on this record. Like there was definitely some money put into the production. I don't disagree with that, but I will I will take the tack that I, I after listening to it the first time, went through and listened to the singles again mm-hmm. to try to hear, okay, which one of these was the one they said, okay, great, you guys, great, but we need another turning Japanese. Right. I don't they think they, they, they didn't give them that. So um, I don't think it, I don't think there's anything on here that sounds any more commercial than Rock the Casbah or um, Jimmy Jams they, or... Yeah. Um, to me, I was pleasantly surprised that this was like, uh, especially after listening to um, Billy Squire, I was like, oh, yeah. the lyrics are worth listening to. They're not just total throwaway garbage. I, this destroyed that turning Japanese destroyed them because this record did nothing. But well, I think there were and I think they were well, and they were bitter because the expectations were we need another their own expectations probably. Well, no, I think I think this met their expectations. They wanted to put out a record that people would go instead of when they walked in go oh these are these goofball pop guys. But no one listened to this. Everybody wanted the other thing. Right. Well, they they broke up when the record company refused to release another single off the record. And they said, you know what, let's quit. And they also said some of them were just losing their enthusiasm for being in the big band to begin with. I mean, I'm when I look at it, I think, well, what, where could they have gone after this? Could they have done what Radiohead did, did you know, really crappy Pablo Honey record? And then maybe something a little more challenging after that, and then just made the kind of records they wanted to. I think they had career ambitions. That's just my thought. Um, I guess I, like. I guess I'll disagree with you. I, I think I they know. wanted they wanted a career as long as they had credibility, and they had lost credibility with you the think? first record, and then no one listened to this record. It's it's like here's your credibility. No one cares. So, um, either way, I, with that argument aside, this record is worth going back and listening to. The te- I'm going to recommend this record, and I was pleasantly surprised. And again, the curse of the vapors was I didn't even know this record really existed. I and 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 when I went to listen to it, I was like, 
where's turning Japanese too? I know it's on here because mm-hmm. these guys are a bunch of tools. And then I was like, wait, they're they're doing some good stuff. I think, so yeah, uh, that that bit, the things like that only appeared very briefly, and that was a very brief song. And I don't even know the name of it, right? But that know that thing you're talking about, that kind of silly stuff. This record's a lot more darker than um, than the first one had to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, I was also pleasantly surprised, so I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Me too. And that will lead us right into our last record, which is called Face Dances. It's by The Who, and this is my favorite song of the record, and it's called You Better You Bet. I call you on a telephone, my boy's too rough with cigarettes. I sometimes feel I should just go The interesting thing to me about right off the bat, thinking about this record, is um, this might be the first episode where we've been more, or at least me, I've been more taken by the record covers than I have the records the record themselves. Um, yeah. I've, I had, I've had a visceral reaction to every record cover on this podcast really? um, of some kind, either positively or negatively. Um, so I found Face Dance the album cover to be very interesting. I wanted to find wow. face dances. So the, the album cover itself is famous artists from the time doing portraits of each of the members and uh, a bunch of different uh, big-time artists at the time. And if you break those down individually, there's some cool artwork there. I don't know that the album cover works as a cover itself, but the art itself is interesting. And I think it's weird that you've got the Magnets record and this record, which have real artists doing the <laughs> right, cover. Right. And then you got Billy Squire doing that weird thing he's doing. And uh, Was that, did Warhol do that? Oh, do, do the Billy Squire cover? Yeah. No. Is that just some treatment? That's just a treatment, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, God, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so Face Dances as an album. So uh, the first thing that I found interesting about this was that I didn't realize this was only the ninth studio album from The Who. Only the ninth. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would have thought by 1980s they would have had, you know, the Rolling Stones already had like a million records at this point. Um, it's the first without Keith Moon, of course. Uh, they had replaced him with drummer Kenny Jones, a friend of the, theirs from the band The Faces. Um, most of the songs for this record were, that were by Pete Townsend were, were written around the same time that he had written the songs for Empty Glass, mm-hmm. which we covered last year. Yes. I found it interesting that Townsend was able to kind of m- manipulate his songwriting 
for the different for the new band. So the new band, the new band, because the, what do you mean? because the who was dead when Keith Moon died, and right. I think Pete Townsend was able to recognize that and say, um, I need I'm writing songs more of a pop. Uh, 80s collective tight band sound, which is not what the Who was. And so when they got the, the Who new guy. was like controlled chaos, and none of these songs I don't think would have worked with Keith Moon. I'm not sure they work with the Who. Well, that's the case. I would, and I would I will, say to you now. And I, I, well, let me say one more thing, and then you can you can tear it to pieces. Yeah. Um, if these songs had been given the same treatment that Empty Glass had been given, I think it would be a much more respected album. It should have been a Pete Townsend solo yeah. record, and I'll tell you why. The one problem with this record is Pete Townsend should have sung these songs. They were not meant for They were not for meant for adultery. Yeah. And I tell you what gave me this overall feeling was the Entwistle songs, the two Entwistle songs. The Quiet One. And, and, uh, and the other one, I don't remember. You, I think it was called. Um, those two songs are written by a guy that says, I'm in the Who, I'm just writing Who songs for the Who. And they don't work, in my mind, with this new setup. Well, like he, he, but they sound right for, for his. Daltrey to sing. Oh, and yeah, for, yeah. But none of the Pete Townsend songs that... There's this one song about, like, you took my money or you stole from me. Yeah, yeah. That I can hear Pete Townsend singing with his kind of tongue-in-cheekness that would be great. The Roger Daltrey treatment of it is just like I did. Th- I think it was interesting how they try how he tried to use it whistle in a in a more creative way <laughs> somehow. Like the Who has always been, like you said, about controlled chaos, right? And this record was not really. It's like they shoehorned the old band into trying these songs, right? And tried to make the most of the iconic bits that everybody does. And it whistle had a, has a certain way of doing his bass. I don't know what do you call that? Just like this big thud, yeah, you I know, mean, distortion on it, whatever. Just and, to, probably had to do that to keep up with he would how get, loud Keith Moon was. He would get added if you. I don't know if you listen to this thing in headphones, but you'd hear him get added at just the right points, or just at certain points to try to remind everybody that hey, this is the who, <laughs> right? You know, so um, it it. it on paper, it's, but it should have worked. It just kind of didn't. It didn't feel like a cohesive whole as a as a result to me. Because when I listen to an album, I do listen for continuity from beginning to end, and I want to hear like a a theme, right? And that didn't really seem to emerge. It whistle still had his funny song, right? Right. Whatever that was, and um, but he seemed like to be the only guy that truly understood what what the band was supposed to be well there was you know uh, what I mean? yes the the just the, for my own to dig a little deeper into this the, there was a i found a, a a version a demo version of the song empty glass mm-hmm. from the album empty glass that was written around the same time mm-hmm. but that actually was done townsend had it in 78 and he did it with keith moon and entwistle as a demo in 78 really and it's on who who are you the album who are you it's on the extended version listening to that and then listening to the empty glass version on empty glass is the same as listening to this record and going that i see now there was no way townsend could have wrote he was smart enough to go um we're going into a new era here without keith moon i wish they'd kind of changed the name of the, i wish he'd just not 
done anything with Roger Daltrey at this point with these songs because they sound like to me they would have been better on his solo record. How many songs did did Daltrey sit out of on this one? Because there were a few. Right. Where he's just in the back playing the tambourine or whatever he does. Right. Right. Um, and I and apparently there was some tension because um, Daltrey was angry that he he felt like he took the best songs and put them on empty glass and kept the others he's, for. I mean, I think he might be right. Well, but this kind of it's it kind of that same thing where what was it Journey or where they're, where they're accusing when when uh, Steve Perry goes out and does Oh Sherry and then Journey's like. What the fuck? Why don't you give that to us? <laughs> like that's a fucking right. journey song, dude. You know, so um, I guess he was kind of right, but I, I did. Did you see the quote where Daltrey was like, uh, I, and I'm, I don't have it in front of me. What was the song that he had that was the the sort of um, homo uh, the erotic, gay, the but young boys, rough boys, rough boys. Yeah, he was like, yeah, really. Like I was gonna have, um, like I was gonna sing that. I was gonna have Roger sing that one. Yeah. Um, so I could see where he was like, I'm going to hold back some of this stuff. So this one, man, just this one gets a thumbs down from me. Um, I wanted to like it a lot better than I, than I did. I really like the the song "You Better You Bet." Like I think that's one of my favorite Who that's songs. That's my least favorite single of um, all Who single. Uh, no, I mean that's I don't really care for the song that much. Okay, see, I like that one quite a bit. So I also like, in a weird way, I kind of like '80s. Who, as much as I like, like, um, Quadrophenia Who. Yeah. I'm not a big, like, um, expanded hard rock Who guy either. So I like my Who, like early Who, like the Kinks, and then late Who. But I can't say I, I recommend this record. I, it would not be. I like Bob O'Reilly, you know. <laughs> you like Bob O'Reilly, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Okay, so. I just, I like the, my, my Who with big guitars, you know. I, I feel like this record, though, just missed. If it had been a Pete Townsend, this should and drop those two Ent Whistle tunes and just make it his own record. I think that would be a much more interesting uh, project. But, um, so yeah, that's the, that's Space Dances. I think we both are not into that. Mm-hmm. But we ought to get Megan's opinion on this, Henry. I'm sure she's going to weigh in on. Well, I don't know. She might weigh in on one of these records or something on her own. Megan, what do you got for us this month? Hey, everyone. Um, I'm in a great mood today. Uh, I was recently offered a significantly better job, which I did accept. So I'm still cheesing a little bit over that. Um, I'm definitely not cheesing about the Billy Squire record that Henry and Chris had to listen to and discuss this month. Um, with him, regardless of all his other work, like he could have a lot of great material that I've never heard, probably. But I just cannot forgive the trash heap of a song that is The Stroke. Uh, occasionally, I do kind of feel bad for Billy Squire because of how awful the video for Rock Me Tonight is. If you've never seen it, you definitely need to look it up because it's pretty hilarious. Just... I mean, it's full of just 80s, the worst parts about the 80s. It's in that video. And I really think it fucked with his career, which kind of sucks for him, I guess. But uh, anytime I need a little bit of a pick-me-up or a laugh, I can put that video on and it really never disappoints. Anyway, enough about Billy Squire. Um, My pick for the month of March 1981 is Gang of Four's Solid Gold. Um, If you've listened to this show before, you might know that I fancy post-punk quite a bit. And this album is also listed 
in addition to post-punk under the genre of dance punk, which that's kind of fun. Um, it's a quick listen, short and sweet, but it's definitely solid gold. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, what I love in particular about Gang of Four, though, and really this album in particular, is that they're witty. Like, they've got a nice, like, sarcastic edge, and I just really enjoy that. I think that's cool, because um, punk, not necessarily post-punk, really, but, like, punk in general, kind of, I think for a while it was viewed as being kind of dumb. Um, but these guys, they were super intelligent, and, I don't know, there's, like, a song called Cheeseburger on this album, and it just always makes me laugh. It's just funny. A little bit of social commentary, especially in regards to America. Um, and really compared to the first album before this one, because this was their sophomore album, um, they really locked down their musical style, too. Um, it's just way, way tighter, like less chaotic sounding. And I know that's not as punk, but I actually kind of prefer um, this sound as opposed to the first album, which I believe is called Entertainment. Definitely still a good album, but this one I think is their stronger work. Um, in addition to, since we're and a podcast about the 80s, I have to talk about Stranger Things a little bit. And I might be behind. I know everybody loves the show and you hear about it quite often. But I just, I really like, I think that it hits the nail on the head when it comes to like 80s style. Um, some of the 80s music that's in the show, I don't necessarily love. Like, I'm not a huge Corey Hart fan or a Brian Adams fan, but um, even just the original uh, compositions for the show, which are done by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, I believe are their names. They do a great job. Just those really dark, synthy songs. I love it. And the show itself is really well written, and I loved the third season. I thought it was even better than the second season, so I'm really excited to see where they go with the show and as they progress maybe into the 80s and get into some more 80s music. I would totally be fine with that, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. And my pick for the month, uh, Gang of Four Solid Gold. So thank you so much for listening, and... I'll talk to you again soon. It's time for our pick of the month. Pick of the month. What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> All right. I, my, did you even recommend a record this month? Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah, did. yeah. It's gonna be. Um, it's gonna be the Vapors record. That's gonna be your pick of the month. That's my pick of the month. Well, that's gonna be my pick of the month as Damn well. It. This is two months in a row, I believe. And you know what? I, what I, I just want to tell people. The same person. We kind of had an argument uh, before we started this year. This record barely made the show. Um, it was one of our extras. I didn't really want to put it on here again because I didn't really think the Vapors were worth covering. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, it turned out, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose it as my pick of the month as well. And Henry, just just. For our completists out there, I believe we need to we need to do a little housekeeping. Um, the Vapors record actually came out in December of 1981, and we used we no. had, yes we had an extra spot here that we needed to fill, and that's why we had an argument about whether or not we should cover the really? Vapors record. Yes, that's got to be kidding me. I thought we vetted all that. Nope, uh, it actually came out out of order. Don't don't lose your. Don't lose your shit out there in Podland. It's okay. We we did have a few spots we had to fill with other records. Okay, so something we forgot to mention. Well, just a little talking about a little um, cleaning house. We had uh, a commentary about our pod from 
uh, our friend Trent 420. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. I remember Several him. months ago, he gave us a little bit of grief because he said that the records that we were choosing, um, I think he thought that the music that we were viewing was boring. But, okay, so he's got a litany of things he wants us to do better. But he also was specifically focused on hit singles. Um, to have radio play or be popular in the clubs. Now, we've, I've tried to tell 420 Trent we do albums, right? We're in, we're in from beginning to end of the record, and we're not so focused on singles, right? And, and in all actuality, we try to avoid playing singles because right. we feel like you might have already heard the so, single. So he followed up and he says, "I'm glad I kept listening," which we're very thankful about. I really appreciate that. Uh, Trent said more of the sound I was thinking of is starting to creep into the show but you also proved my point by skipping over Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart single which doesn't appear on an album. That's right and that's why we didn't review it Trent is because it didn't appear on the album. But it is a song we both love. Right. And So I mean I I tell you what Trent. You want to review it for him real quick Henry? If you uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart is an excellent song. and um, I and, think it's an amazing song. And, and you know, in, in all honesty, it kind of reminds me of like, you know how everyone in America only knows one Smith song? That's the one everybody knows from Joy Division. Right, but it's actually really good. The one Smith song everybody knows, How Soon Is Now, is one of my least It doesn't necessarily sound like the Smiths. Right, so yeah, this is a great song. Um, also, Trent for... Trent, 420 Trent. Trent, 420 Trent. I'm going to give it a recommend. Me too. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Send us your review, Trent. Yeah, we'd love to hear your <laughs> review of it, actually. And I'm, and I'm not kidding. I would, no. I'm, thanks so much for uh, I really do appreciate responding. Yeah, that's great. Um, I tell you what. And in all, all honesty, if there are any of you out there, if there are singles that aren't on albums that you think are super important that we're missing, I think that would be a cool addition. I, I have no problem with that. Um, but we are an album show. We are trying to cover albums because that was really the format of the 80s were albums. Yeah. Right. So uh um, thanks for listening. Yeah, we, we can't thank you enough for listening. All right. So many thanks to our show producer, Greg Levin. If you like the way we sound, you can talk to him at Urban Dweller, U-R-B-N-D-W-E-L-L-R on Instagram or Urban Dweller on Twitter. Also, many thanks to Megan, our social media maven. So if you want to start a social media argument with us, you'll probably be arguing with her. and uh, Unless. Or unless what? Unless you hit us up on one of our Twitter handles. Yeah, because now. you have those now. Yeah, I'm at TCI Duke. I'm at, at Hank G. H-A-N-K-G-E-E. Hank G. Chris, guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape. <laughs> <laughs>